3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 8.55am. Or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us. Welcome everybody to Uprise Radio. Great to see you again, Sadie's and Jackson. Hey, James. I assume most of our listeners would have seen the IPCC report that came out on the 8th of August. And our guest uh, today on the show is Pam Walker, who probably doesn't need an introduction to most listeners on 3CR, but I'm going to give him one anyway. So, as I said, the IPCC report was released on the 8th of August, and in the midst of a world still coming to terms with the global health pandemic, many of the nation states that are unable to handle the current pandemic are also the very same who have dragged the world behind on climate action. The report and the reporting of the report comes from the starting point of what the world would look like if action was taken today to pull back to net zero emissions. But that's clearly not happening, even if some progress has been made in recent times with the US and China. It's a stark warning of the global terror that awaits, even if significant action is taken, but not taken in time. The COVID-19 pandemic is a serious health crisis that is impacting capitalism in a way not seen since the world wars. But it will pale into comparison to what life would look like without serious changes on how the climate is viewed and cared for. We know big actions are needed, particularly in Australia, with a government who won't hold the hose to put out fires and an opposition with almost no climate policy. But one organisation that's been at the forefront of action on climate for many years is Friends of the Earth. Joining us on the show is a media spokesperson for FOE and someone who does hold the hose, Cam Walker. Hello, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us, Cam. And yes, you do hold the hose out there, um, Castle Maine, and have been a part of, you know, pretty horrendous bushfire season last year. I wonder if um, before we get into the report itself, and, you know, I know you're probably the most knowledgeable person I can think of to talk about some of the impacts around, you know, our ecosystems and what it means, some of the things detailed in the report. But how did, you know, even for for all of your, you know, expertise and knowledge of years of climate activism, how did it feel being a part of, uh, um, you know, the bushfires last season and, and being on the front line of that? You know, it was actually a really good thing. It seems like a strange thing to say, but, um, you know, as, as you know, I've spent a lot of time working on climate campaigning and environmental campaigning and a lot of the places that I love, I see them burning more and more frequently. So, of course, we live in a landscape that has co-evolved with fire. Many ecosystems are, are fire dependent or at least fire tolerant. But what's happening is a lot of key ecosystems and the ones I you know, best are up in the mountains, the alpine ash, the mountain ash, the snow gum woodlands, the peatlands, they're getting fires more frequently. 
So a snow gun forest might get, you know, a, a fire every 50 years or 80 years, and now they're getting it every 12 years and then every 10 years. So that was the impetus for me to sign on as a volunteer firefighter, um, and that was watching an area that I knew burning for the third time in basically a decade. So in a very weird way, uh, you know, it's it's been good for my climate grief. Um, you're just one person amongst hundreds and sometimes among thousands, but really all we can do is what we can do. And, uh, yeah, I feel really uh, good to be involved in, in firefighting where I can. And you spoke there about climate grief, and I think that... Uh, it's hard not to kind of have that kind of reaction to the report itself, isn't it? Because, as I said in the introduction, that, you know, we really now, and I think, you know, the Morrison government in particular, are really falling really far behind on, you know, any kind of um, procedure forward to do our bid. And it's not just, you know, as Morrison and this government might say that we're a small nation, but, you know, it's what we export to India and China and and other states there, you know, we've heard again recently talk of building a um, nuclear of nuclear power station. You know, these kind of debates that you know we've been around hearing for for many many years now, and still no real progress forward. What can we do, and how do we combat this kind of climate grief that the report can give many of us? Yeah, so it is really hard, and and hard to process, and hard to deal with, and especially when you think that. The IPCC report, in a way, there's nothing new in it. Anyone that's been reading the science knows all that stuff anyway. And what we know about the IPCC process is it's inherently conservative because what happens is it's a consensus document. So if there's anything everyone doesn't agree on, then it gets trimmed out. And there was something like 230 researchers who worked on the report. So imagine how hard it is to get consensus between 230 people. So a lot of the, you know, the possibly the fringe stuff is, is pulled out and some of the more dire ones and some of the details that, you know, haven't really been cross-collaborated, uh, uh, affirmed as yet. Um, but the other thing is it has a process where they close the books on the research and then review it. And then that results in the report, which is what this is, the, the six IPCC report. So it's already out of date because they're looking at research from several years ago. So knowing all that, it's just terrifying uh, to think what's coming. Um, it just reaffirmed yet again that we know that humans are driving global warming. We know that we've already warmed by more than one degree Celsius against background temperatures. We know that um, we're going to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius mid-century no matter what. We know that if we don't act now, we're going to at least go to three degrees. Um, and there's some really interesting data in there around sea level rise and um you know, uh, we've had 20 centimetres of sea level rise since 1900. The rate of rise has, has tripled in the last decade. If we can hold the warming to two degrees Celsius, we're still locked into half a metre of, of sea level rise, uh, basically by the end of this century. If we go past um, the two degrees Celsius um, uh, level, then we might get two metres of warming. So whichever way you look at this, heat, impact on ecosystems, impact on humans, you know, we're, we're, we're not built to live in 50 degrees Celsius, you know, we die at those temperatures. If you look at agriculture, if you look at the mountains, if you look at the mangroves, if you look at the oceans, all the details are horrifying. And so the only sane response to a report like this is grief and alarm and fear 
and hopefully also a bit of anger and determination, anger at the leaders who fail us. And we know that the federal government has failed us comprehensively. We know that the federal government is controlled by climate deniers. We know they're closely aligned with the fossil fuel industry. We know we're in in step with the Murdoch press that throw denial out at every you know step um, of movement. We know that they're connected with the right-wing think tank. So anger is a really reasonable response, but also so is hope. And we have hope if we get organised because the IPCC report yet again said, look, we know how to get out of this. We actually have the technology to do this. The, the movement on, on renewables and efficiency and storage is astonishing, you know, and if you think back just a couple of decades when this was all developmental kind of technology in the testing phase, it's all now proven, it's all now good to go, and it's now all cheaper than fossil fuel. So there's hope, but to see that hope realised, we've got to have political activity and we've got to accept the scale of the opposition that we face, and that is, without being too, you know, paranoid about it, basically the entire political system is still controlled by people who are either climate deniers uh, in their belief or climate deniers just because it suits their political purpose. So we have a huge uphill battle, but the key take-home message from IPCC is we have a chance to avoid catastrophic global warming, but only if we act now. In terms of, you know, ecosystem collapse, I suppose this is a two-part comment question in regards to um, climate grief and then also how we find that hope. Um, The first part of the question is, within the AR6, the assessment report, um, I think a lot of that climate grief comes because it is global in its scale and it can be really overwhelming. Um, Is it within the scope of the assessment report to look at ecosystem collapse? I know you, Cam, have just written report the loss of an icon on the snow gums. Um, And, you know, just as you spoke about with fire and the intricacies of the ecosystems in which we we live here, and that when single species are removed or the interaction between those species are changed, like the follow-on effects that that has in ecosystems. So I suppose, was it, given the broadness of the... IPCC report, is it in the scope of the report to look at kind of the the fine-tuning of those ecosystems on a local level or in terms of hope, um, you know, what is the work that you're doing, so what's going on in terms, so we can look at a local level at the ecosystems that we live in and sort of reconnect with those and how then to um, fit that into a picture of the report more broadly? Yes, And, and there is local detail in the report And the IPCC website is actually really interesting in that they've got a whole lot of interactive maps with the current report. So, you know, this has been decades of work. I think it was set up in 1988. So the IPCC has been around for a long while, and I feel like they've done a really good job of trying to reach people through different mediums and particularly through social media and through infographics and through maps. And, you know, like they've done a really good job of communicating what's going on. In the report, there is reference to the 2019-20 Australian fires, and there's this whole subsection of climate science which is called attribution science. So when you have a disaster and think of, you know, where we are at present, Siberia, Turkey, Greece, Tunisia, you know, fires kicking off in British Columbia, Alaska, you know, unprecedented fires in Siberia, um, the flooding that happened in Western Europe, the flooding that happened in China and recently in Turkey, you know, the heat dome um, in North America. 
all these things, when these happen and we say, well, this is what climate change is about, there's actually a whole bunch of scientists that do the attribution work that actually look at the climate models and look at the data and say, well, what is the link? And we've known for a very long time there's a very clear understanding of temperature and its impact on extreme weather. And we're now getting more and more detail on how that temperature, as it puts energy into the system, that does do things like influence fires. So the report does drill down to that level. There's some really interesting stuff in there on the fires that we experienced and what that means for us. And then if you kind of step back from IPCC, there's been a vast amount of local research into, you know, we know, for instance, probably five billion animals were killed in that you know, the, the firestorms that happened through that summer. We know the scale of it. We know the number of buildings that were lost. We know all that detail. And um, then there are the local NGOs and, the, you know, local community groups that are doing the restoration work and, and tracking how biodiversity is coming back. So have a really clear picture of what's going on. You've got to read that global science, but you've got to also look at the local level. And I, I feel like... We are sustained by the ecosystems we live in, so it's always good to tune in to what it is that matters to you, if it's the beach, if it's the ocean, if it's the mountains, you know, if it's the woodlands, whatever, you know, it is that you like, tune into that, but then read the science as it goes up the chain to the global level. And I think that's that kind of gives us a, a sense of handle on what's going on, and then we start to, to see how climate change is influencing that particular ecosystem that we either live in or, you know, the one that we love and escape to uh, when we can on our holidays. I suppose it contextualises what's, you know, especially if you're feeling connected mm-hmm. to a particular place, it is able to contextualises what the changes that you might be experiencing or witnessing or being yeah. able to understand it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm not a coastal person. I've got a lot of mates that live on the coast and people talk about, you know, living at Inverloch or living at Apollo Bay and witnessing the storm surges that didn't used to happen. And that's tied into this 20 centimetre of sea level rise that we're experiencing. Not every single weather event is due to climate change, of course, not every fire, but overall the storm surges are getting worse, the flooding are getting worse, the heat waves are getting worse. So I think when you start to see it, in those landscapes, it's kind of like the light bulbs going on over the head and you start to join the dots and you go, well, this is why, you know, in Haiti, they've got yet another tropical storm bearing down on them that will compound the horror of the earthquake that they just lived through, which is just, you know, a, a terrible natural disaster. So it's around really reading those signs and then looking at it through the lens of climate change and seeing that the, as those seasons get longer or worse or more intense, that's actually climate change in real time. You know, and I can remember it only seemed like a few years ago, we were still thinking about climate change that would happen either later in time or somewhere else. You know, maybe it was too blue going under or, or Bangladesh. We are living in it right now. Cam, you've, um, Straxon here and you've touched on some of the, uh, concerns that you have about a, a very detailed 4,000 page report being kind of boiled down to two pages of suggested headlines or mm-hmm. advice for policymakers to take out of it. And I suppose one of the responses, uh, to that, um, I guess, um, compromised release that you're describing with it having to be about consensus and certain things being shed off. One of the responses to that is that 
the, the, the sixth assessment report was supposed to be released in, in three parts across a number of months and a group of scientists, Spanish scientists who are linked to Extinction Rebellion have actually broken ranks and released the third part with the working title of mitigation mm-hmm. early, uh, to a Spanish, uh, publication called CTEX. And, you know, one of the things I've long been sceptical on in the climate debate is placing the onus on individuals to mitigate climate change. But this leaked third part of the report seems to be implying that, you know, a relative few extremely wealthy individuals could make a real difference if they change their extravagant lifestyles. Things like 1% of people causing 50% of aviation emissions or SUVs and other large cars being the second biggest driver of climate change after power generation in the last decade, which is incredible. Do you think or or how could behaviour change amongst the world's elite mitigate climate change? It actually could. uh, And we have this dilemma where, you know, do you blame the individual or do you blame the structure? And kind of to a degree, you know, both are true. Um, if I just do the recycling, you know, and catch the bus, that's not going to save the planet. You know, we do have to look at the systemic crisis that we're in. We're all locked into systems where, well, I couldn't afford an electric vehicle even if I wanted to, you know, and sometimes I've got to drive because there's no bus or the trains aren't running. Do you know what I mean? Like we're, we're stuck in the systems of, of consumption that we are stuck in and that's actually not our fault. We can do the best we can do in those systems. So recycle where we can and, you know, not drive you know, where we can and all that sort of stuff, but we need the systemic change. And it's interesting that the 1% who have kind of been irrelevant to the conversation around climate change to a degree are actually coming into focus because of the obscene scale of the, you know, consumption in their personal lifestyles. You can just look at it and go, well, that is now having an impact on the climate. Um, so I think it's good to focus um, on the 1%. I think it's good to expect them to actually pay a, a decent share of taxes. I think all of us, you know, we like to say we're all in this together when we talk about COVID. It's certainly true when it comes to climate change and it is appropriate that we all do our bit, you know, and that includes the billionaire class who have grown massively in recent decades. We also need to look at the role of the corporations and we know probably that figure that there's about 100 transnational corporations on the planet that are responsible for about 70% of the human produced emissions. You know, that's the fossil fuel companies and the big mining companies. So we really need a clear analysis of this. It is what we can do in our own life but in the political structures that we're stuck in, it is the leadership we should expect from the 1%. They shouldn't be building, you know, spaceships for space tourism. They should actually be putting their shoulder to the wheel and, you know, doing amazing things. I think of, you know, there are some famous, uh, very wealthy people who are philanthropic that have done things like buying up hundreds of thousands of hectares of primary forest in South America to protect it uh, in order to uh, pre- preserve the biodiversity and provide uh, carbon sinks. But we also need to tackle the corporation. So we have to do those three things and we need to do them simultaneously. I think that's a great shift away from, you know, for quite a long time there's been a debate around you know, we all take shorter showers and, you know, that's the kind of individual change. And I think, you know, that it's actually, it's a collectivised response that a mass movement can put a demand on, you know, the billionaire class as well, I think. And, you know, that's the kind of, it's a kind of movement that, you know, maybe many of us might be used to as well, is putting that pressure on, and, you know, those things are one in the same, aren't they, the, the 1% and the corporations that, 
you know, those, those things are intertwined. And I wonder, you know, what is the kind of response that we can be looking at here as well? And obviously, you know, many people that we've spoken to on the show over the past year that we're saying, well, what kind of activism can we do under COVID? You know, we're mm. under these restrictions. And I think that, you know, it, it it's still a challenge, though, and I think it's still a conversation worth happening. And it is different for different uh, campaigns or different movements as well. You know, mm. we're going to be coming up to an election at some point, you know, maybe um, early next year. What do you think, you know, what, what I guess, you know, what's the kind of things that FOE's doing that um, listeners can be a part of, that they can join you know, how do you think the election is shaping? It seemed like it was going to be climate was going to be a much bigger issue last time than it actually was. You know, we've got a Labor Party kind of divided uh, with some who are still, you know, tied to the fossil fuel industry and, you know, a leader who won't kind of come forward with a definitive kind of policy. What What are you kind of forecasting that, you know, as climate activists, as, you know, I hope all listeners are climate activists, that, we can be pushing and to try to get climate to be a part of the agenda for the election and and for the next little while going forward? I think a big part of this is thinking around how we have socially engaged activism. So by that, I mean, we know that in federal elections, who are the key actors from civil society? And it's likely to to be trade unions. They will be the ones that will really get out there and do a lot of work on the streets. So how do we align working class values with climate action. I think there's a lot of work to be done there to engage with trade unions in the next few months to make sure we are on the one uh, page on that. We know that uh, climate change is the ultimate justice issue in every dimension. The rich have caused it. The poor will suffer from it. The lower income in nations like Australia have fewer opportunities and they have fewer reserves, frankly, if their house is destroyed in a storm. You know, can they afford to have insurance? Um, they have a day uh, compared to the 1% in Australia haven't contributed as much. Um, I noticed today there was an interesting conversation from the ex-resources minister, Matthew Canavan, who made a bit of a smart uh, comment about, I oh, will mm. Band sign on, you know, to the intergovernmental panel mm. agreement. And you have to look at that. And apart from just the insensitivity of looking at the horror of what's going on at present in Afghanistan in terms of, you know, the immediate loss of rights for women and minorities and, mm. you know, anyone that isn't a, you know, fundamentalist religion uh, person, just the, the, the mind-boggling arrogance of comparing the average Afghani with the average Australian, and the figures are uh, the average Afghani produces 0.28 tonnes of carbon per person each year. We produce 17 tonnes per person per year. So we are radically over-polluting. We need to accept the reality of that. The rich do need to go first. The rich have a historical carbon debt to the rest of the planet. We need to accept that, and we need to be prepared to talk about that and bring that into the debate. So climate change isn't just this nice thing we might do to save the beaches. It's something that is hardwired with human rights and with historical responsibility and accepting the fact that we have the ability to move, we have the technology to move, we have the economic power to move in the way that Kiribati or Tuvalu does not. So I think what we really need to do is not have another kind of business as usual, you know, 
this time the election is about the climate kind of campaign. We need to have a climate campaign that is predicated on climate justice, which means making sure that no one is left behind. And that's people currently working in the coal sector, that's people that can't afford to insulate their homes, and that's people in Bangladesh that are being directly impacted by climate change. And and just on that, actually, um, just last week, Sheikh Hasina, who is the Prime Minister of Bangladesh, um, released a statement in response to the IPCC report. Um, So on the 8th of July was the first Climate Vulnerable Finance Summit um, for climate vulnerable countries. And so that was they came together to demand a delivery plan for um, the UN agreed the $500 billion for climate mitigation um, and also calling on as part of that and what this uh, statement is calling on a restructuring of the debts for climate vulnerable countries where, you know, recognising that with uh, huge amounts of, of debt and also working to mitigate and, and adapt to, to climate change, that these countries, it's, it's near impossible to do both. It is. Um, so also, you know, looking at the structurally ingrained issues in the economic systems yep. that we live within and how important they are to, to re-examine and to challenge internationally. Yes, indeed. And the debt owed by the Global South, or what we used to call the third world, is a construct that flowed from the colonialist venture, you know, which was the, that African nations and India, many nations were broken and then reformed to benefit the Western European countries. So the inherited debt needs to be seen in a political context, but so does the carbon debt, the historical carbon debt um, that has flowed through our use of resources. So some people love to blame China for the, uh, you know, the climate crisis, but China is producing so many greenhouse gases because they're producing so much stuff that we in the global north buy. So it is all interconnected and we've got to shy away from really simplistic solutions and we need to understand that some nations have caused most of the problems. Australia is one of them, a very high per capita uh, consumption uh, of resources and production of greenhouse gases. Some people have not generated much of the problem, and yet they are on the front lines of it. And so we need a really kind of sophisticated understanding that goes a little bit beyond the slogans that federal election campaigns tend to fall into and also trigger points. So who can forget, you know, the the fear mongering around the taxation at the last federal election. I think we really need a very sophisticated take and a lot of alliance building to make sure that the 1% in the federal election context can't divide people against each other so Mm. that, oh, well, it's either climate or it's jobs, you know, it's either foreign Mm its jobs we really need to understand that we do need to get together as communities and we need to work against the interests of the large corporations and the one percent well unfortunately cam that's um all we've got time for and there's obviously plenty more to discuss uh and i think you know the foe website um often has updates on campaigns that are going on on ways that you can get involved um you know many of our listeners and People at 3CR are already involved in some of those campaigns, but, you know, it's something that we should all be trying to work out a way that we can kind of do what Cam was talking about there to really politicise this, not just the election, but, you know, the country to be able to follow in the footsteps of the school students who are the ones that have been leading the way on climate action in Australia for quite a while now. Indeed. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Cam. Okay. See you Uh, later. 
so yeah, that was great. It's very exciting next week as well to be talking to an Indigenous land manager in far north Queensland. Oh. You know, it seems like the uh, perhaps some of the glaring uh, absences from this report are the myth of continuous growth and an yep. absence of First Nations voices. So that would be a great uh, follow-up to this chat with Cam. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, good o. See you Thanks, all. Cam. Good to see you again. Take yeah. care. A compelling report there by James Jackson and Mercedes from Uprise Radio, who caught up with Friends of the Earth campaign coordinator Cam Walker to discuss the release of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report. Um, now, as we know, the report documented a 1.1 degree increase in temperature in Australia and has some severe implications that the government should be acting on. Um, So that was part of a a two-part special. Um, You can catch the full conversation on www.3cr.org.au forward slash Uprise Radio. Um, And at the moment, the time is 28 past 7. You're with Jacob on 3CR Monday Brekkie. Welcome to those who have just joined us. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, And up next, we've got a, a special segment Alice from Wednesday Breakfast spoke with a data privacy expert, Dr. Helen Pack uh, from the UNSW Computer Science and Engineering Department about some serious privacy concerns surrounding the digital vaccine passport. Australia might soon be issuing vaccine passports in a bid to restore the economy to some form of pre-pandemic normalcy. Fully vaccinated people may be granted greater freedom of movement, such as entry to restaurants, bars, sports concerts, the opportunity to travel. The the list kind of goes on. Um, And we've seen in other countries, specifically across Europe, of how they've particularly done their vaccine passport. But what I want to know today is how will this digitisation of our records affect our online privacy? And so we have on the show Dr. Helen Peck, who is a computer and data scientist at the University of New South Wales, who joins us today to speak exactly about the privacy and the data of these online digital vaccine passports. Helen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. And so first up, I guess I just want to know how is it being rolled out currently in Australia? So when somebody is fully vaccinated... What is being delivered to them after that? Um, I think most Australian citizens would be able to go onto the Medicare website and either get a PDF um, documentation that shows they've been vaccinated, or I think the government just recently released um, a sort of more like a ticket, wallet ticket version of um, certificate where you can download the certificate onto your phone, into mm. your um phone wallet, like Apple Apple wallet or Android phone wallets. It seems like quite a lot of a person's future freedom is riding on what sounds like a PDF. That's right, yes. Um, so at the moment, I mean, you, at the intro you mentioned how other countries like, or, or the regions like EU is rolling out their version of vaccine passports. And um, in, in over there, they have much more investment in the in the infrastructure of this um, issuing of um, vaccine passports and verification of these vaccine passports in the form of more secure um, mechanisms like digital signatures or QR codes. Um, but we don't actually see that in Australia yet. 
um, maybe it, it is coming. But at the moment, it is really just what I what I would call a glorified PDF form of your vaccine passport, which can be easily forged um, mm. and you know can be just screenshot and sent it over to someone else and things like that. And just quickly back on to that QR code. Um, in in your own opinion, is that something that Australia really should be investing in that digital infrastructure, I, as you said? I do think so. I mean, if it is, if this vaccine passport or in, in the form of, um, if this is a way out of a pandemic for us to get our freedom back, I think we should have more secure infrastructure. It would um, convince people that using this vaccine passport will be a secure and can be done in privacy, safe manner. Um, at the moment, I was quite actually surprised if, if you actually download the, um, the vaccine certificate from Medicare at the moment onto your wallet. Uh, what you see on the Apple iPhone um, version of it, I see your, uh, so I see my name and I see the green tick that shows me that I'm vaccinated. And then it's got date of birth. Um, and my immediate thought was, if I want to show this to someone to get in somewhere, that person only needs to know that I've been vaccinated twice or mm. once. Um, why does that person need to know my date of birth, right? Especially information like date of birth is something that we use as a security passing to get into a lot of other systems too. So it's quite private and important information. So I was quite surprised to see that um, just being shown on the um, screen without any protection. So uh, things like that, I think it's, if, you, if you use QR code, those information can be encoded into the QR code and only a scanner, um, sort of mechanical device, can read that information and that digitally send that information to um, some authorised system that can securely verify that information. Um, and the verifier doesn't need to know my other information um, at all, just the fact that I've been vaccinated. So a mechanism like that will really be um, necessary if we want to widely roll out um, vaccine passport idea. Mm. And I guess also if if it's in that form of PDF on your phone or in your wallet that you can that you can just show. Yeah. I mean, who needs to see it on a on a daily basis? Like, would people be asking to see it unnecessarily as well? Like, we don't want That's to right. share our information exactly. with just everyone. Exactly. Well, th- thank you for mentioning that. I, I think actually that, that is really an important thing to um, consider because now, say, um, before this pandemic, that you had to show your driver's license to a post office um, clerk because you need to collect parcel. There are very few occasions that we need to actually sh- share our identity openly like this. But now with this vaccine passport, you may really need to show this to everywhere you go, be asked to, uh, asked to see this information. So how do we trust these um, so-called verifiers who are asking this information? Do they have legitimate reason to show this, uh, to, to see this information? Um, so, so when I, when we mentioned this uh, digital infrastructure, um, what we actually envisage is people who issue these vaccine passports, people who hold these vaccine passports, and also people who need to see these vaccine passports, verify these vaccine passports, they all need to be registered somehow in the system with proper rights and regulations placed. So when we expose this information to verifier, we can actually do that with confidence, that this person who is seeing my information is uh, doing so with legitimate reason. Mm. 
And what's the concern if, with the information, potentially you mentioned before, like fraud or or anything like that, what, what are your greatest concerns there? I guess it is, um, at first, it's not nice to have your information stolen so easily um, and have it in someone else's possession, even if it's not used. Um, but second, once the information is stolen or um, being in a position of someone who's not supposed to have that information, we actually lose control over that information totally. We're quite vulnerable. Whenever, I mean, that's why I guess something like privacy is important. Because once you lose that data, once you sort of hand out that data, um, it's really difficult to have control over that. So we don't know what on what purpose that data will be used um, further on um, or whether it will be deleted eventually. We just don't have that control. Mm-hmm. So those control issues and identity theft, misuse, all that is still quite difficult and open open problems. And do you think the majority of us are a little bit almost like numb to our, our digital privacy because there's <laughs> so much of ours I, out yeah, there? I, I do think so too. I guess I'm just wondering whether... I mean, there is this... All, all privacy regulations, serious privacy regulations... I have this principle called, um, main principle called data minimization. So basically the idea is um, collector of the information should minimize the data um, that they collect from the data holder. Um, but if you look at just the example that I showed you about this, um, the vaccine passport, the Apple version of it, uh, the iPhone version of it has my date of birth, which I don't know why uh, it's there, right? the pur- purpose of it. Um, so when someone designs um, data sharing system like that, do they really have this data minimization idea um, up front in their, in, their, in their mind? Because once this kind of data is exposed, as I was saying before, we, the holder of that information has no control. It's, it's, it's just vulnerable to um, the data being misused and, um, you know, just just lost, lost mm-hmm. uh, lose that information, if you know what I mean. And, and I guess, like you said before, your your date of birth can be used to verify who you are in many other different forums or many other different digital spaces. And if having a vaccine passport is another way to verify who you are, that could be detrimental to people if that has been been exploited who's been unfortunate enough to have their identity stolen that way. Yeah, so since this vaccine passport is it's going to be widely used, um, I think having this um, idea of minimising exposure of important private information really should be at the front of all the systems that we'll be rolling out. Mm. And is there a way that we can try and put a bit more pressure onto those people that we need to to make those changes so that the structure of this passport is is a lot stronger than it is now? Um, I guess people just being aware of these issues and um, I guess having those media exposure of those issues being reported, um, just educating people that uh, we may be numb to this, um, some of the sort of private information being leaked out um, through opportunities like this. But... We really should be aware that this is a serious problem. I mean, it, it's your information. If you don't care about um, controlling it or, uh, or protecting it, who would? 
Absolutely. So I think we all we all should do um, our role in um, you know having our privacy in, uh, protected. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Helen Peck, for speaking Not with me a today. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And um, yeah, hopefully we can come back and have another chat about our privacy because it's really key. I'm very keen to to not be the numb person in the room. Um, I agree. Yeah, I agree. yeah, it's very important. Right. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. No Bye. worries. Bye. And that was Dr. Helen Peck, who is a computer and data scientist at the University of New South Wales, speaking to us about the privacy of vaccine passports. Thank you to Alice from Wednesday Breakfast for shedding some insight onto the implications of the digital vaccine passport. Well, we've got driver's licences, we've got international travel passports, um, and it looks like we might have another thing uh, to identify us by. And interestingly, in COVID news, more than 11% of New South Wales adults aged 16 to 39 received their first shot in the last week alone, the federal government reports. Um, And this statistic is nearly twice the rate of their peers in other states, with about 7% in Victoria receiving their first shot in the last week, um, and compared to 5% in WA and Tassie. Um, So as we know, young people weren't actually eligible for the vaccine for the first five months um, of the rollout, which changed in July when we could all get our Astras. Um, And now we've luckily enough to get Pfizer's. So fingers crossed um, we can hit that 70% vaccine milestone by September 23rd, in which the Premier of Victoria is promising to, to loosen some restrictions Um, But I hope everyone's doing well and okay during this lockdown. Look after yourselves and each other. Um, And now we're going to play a song. So this one's called Like a Girl Never Would by the Zen Circus and Brian Rich.
was Like a Girl Never Would by the Zen Circus and Brian Rich. Ah, how I miss live music. Um, we'll be right back after this with some community service announcements. Australia might soon be issuing vaccine passports in a bid to restore the... A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Digi People Place Language. Connecting stories, culture and language across Australia. Contribute your content in digitube.com.au. Sign up for a free account and select your options for streaming. Download and broadcast promotion. A 3CR supporter. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. 
The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. Good morning, folks. You're joined today by Jacob on 3CR Monday Brekkie. Um, up next, we've got an exciting interview. So the climate emergency is something that is rightfully a cause for concern for a lot of us. As indicated by the most recent IPCC report, the effects of climate change may be closer and more dangerous than they appear. According to a 2017 CDP Carbon Majors report by the Climate Accountability Institute, 70% of global emissions come from just 100 companies. So what role can media professionals, marketing and creative agencies play? Well, joining us now is Warren Davies, who is the Managing Director of All or Nothing, a local purpose-driven creative agency. And Warren's company just published a children's book on climate change called What a Mess. And we are also joined by the wonderful Belinda Noble, who is the CEO of Comms Declare, which is an advocacy organisation calling on communications, PR and media agencies to stop working with fossil fuel companies. So welcome to the show, both of you. Hi, Jacob. Hey, Belinda. Hello. So, Warren, what motivated your company to publish a children's book about climate change? Well, I would like to say we uh, like to draw, but um, it is more than that. I think um, we, we just had a few conversations. Um, it came off the back of the, the fires that we had in, in 1920 and um, uh, I guess um, the, the start of the, the COVID pandemic last year that um, we, 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 I think at our, our uh, suspicions and fears and um, I, I guess our conversations sort of cauterized by, by what happened last year and we'd had... I guess many difficult conversations with adults. It's very hard to address your peer group or uh, address clients or, or people in the media uh, front on about the climate emergency. So we thought, um, let's have some easier conversations. Let's have some uh, simple conversations with people who are um, going to uh, approach it really honestly and from a place of curiosity. So we thought, let's speak to the kids about it. For sure. And, and what a fantastic way to do so. Um, so can you shout out some insight into the process of, of writing the book? So how did you go about creating it? Yeah, well, I think um, we didn't want to put adults off. I, I think we wanted to find a, a point where um, both kids and adults could have a, a, a fun conversation about it. So we didn't want to be uh, too sort of uh, finger pokey in the chest. But, um, individuals are, are to blame, but... Um, we'd read some research that uh, a little bit of guilt does actually help with behaviour change uh, um, around this issue. So we thought, um, is there a fun way to kind of raise this with stuff things up a little bit? Um, and we ended up with, um, I guess, looking at things that kids would understand. They're always being told for, you know, um, they've got mess on their chin or mess in their room or, you know, they've made a mess of their colouring book or what have you. So we just thought uh, it's a fun way to start a conversation between um, adults and kids. And the author, Luke, um, has uh, a couple of kids and I think he was sort of testing uh, as he went and uh, seeing what they responded to. And, uh, yeah, I think that was it. Amazing. And and who was the illustrator for the, the book? Oh, yeah. Um, it's a UK illustrator, uh, Liberty Ewan. Um, you can find uh, Liberty on Instagram, Orange Juice for Dinner. Um, and 
Yeah, she was um, very happy to be involved. Uh, they've had, uh, obviously, sort of pretty hard lockdowns over in the UK. Uh, it's a pretty anxious time. Um, and she's she's a little bit younger as well. She's sort of... Um, um, uh, can recall kind of kid stories and, uh, and learning and stuff um, from recent times. So, um, yeah, she was happy to be involved and um, it was a new experience for her as well. She'd not done a kid's book before or, or a book at all. Wow. Um, so we're seeing a lot of um, growth in, in concerns for climate change among the younger generation with, with more and more people protesting and raising their voices about it. What are you hoping to achieve from the book? Well, I think, uh, firstly, we'd just like adults and kids to read the book. Um, we've got, uh, got a bunch of copies out there and it's, it's going well so far. And, um, I think we want those adults to reflect on what they can do at a, at a very sort of local level, whether it's just your, your family or your friends or your colleagues and coworkers. Um, we want them to, to start thinking about what they can do. It's not just up to government. It's not just up to big business. I think those hundred businesses that you mentioned, we, we absolutely day by day need to put pressure on them to, to change. Um, to, to change their business entirely. But um, I think we can all do stuff um, within our circle of influence. And in our industry, it's, um, it's very interesting. The more conversations you have about this, um, the more sort of quizzical looks that you get and you kind of get that, um, you know, sort of hand signal across the throat, like we don't talk about this, um, especially during business hours, because it's hard to live your personal ethics at work uh, around this because um, people in these industries... You know, you don't have a lot of choice, especially if you're just sort of on the payroll as to who you work with and what kinds of projects you work on. But um, I think we're finding that, um, as you said, younger people coming through, they want to work in a place that reflects their personal values. They will make choices based on what they believe. And, yeah, they're, they're asking their bosses, they're asking their colleagues to, to sort of stand up. And it's kind of... It's a bit of a cliche, but um, uh, fossil fuels is, is this generation's uh, tobacco or alcohol or gambling. So, um, yeah, you know, enough is enough. Fantastic analogy there. Um, and on that note of creative professionals supporting more climate-friendly workplaces, Belinda, welcome to the program. Do you want to tell us a bit about your organisation, Comms Declare? Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Um, Comms Declare is a group we ask creative marketing advertising and, and PR um, agencies and creatives to declare that they won't promote highly polluting products or organisations, um, particularly fossil fuels. Um, as we know, um, Australia's uh, a very large per capita emitter of greenhouse gases and uh, a very large exporter of, or one of the largest exporters of coal and gas. Um, if you take all of Australia's emissions, we're... Um, about 5% of the global total, which is the same as Russia. So Australia has a really big part to play. And uh, obviously the creative industries and people in the creative industries have a, a crucial um, role in shaping ideas and culture. So um, we're asking them to take that responsibility a bit more seriously and uh, to not use their talents to perpetuate the climate crisis. For sure, a fantastic cause. And what would you say is the scale of the problem with um, marketing and, and communication professionals supporting fossil fuel industries? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, when you look at the, the very big advertisers, um, say, for example, um, the energy retailers um, that um, you know, are some of our biggest polluters through the use of coal and gas, um, they spend tens of millions in advertising in Australia every year um, promoting promoting their products. Um, these products have cleaner alternatives and they aren't sustainable. So 
obviously like gas and coal heating, um, big SUVs, things like that. Um, so that is, that is a, a massive influence um, on, I think, just you know, public uh, perceptions. Um, what we don't see so much of, but is definitely happening, is um, the the companies influencing uh, politicians, journalists, and public servants through lobbying, mm-hmm. um, which is comes with uh, comes with that industry as well. So, yeah, I would say it's um, it's, it's a large problem, not just for our environment, but also for our democracy. For sure. And, and do you mind if I ask who is involved? Who are the main culprits in Australia? <laughs> um, well, look, you just, um, we've actually got a list on our website, uh, comsdeclare.org, um, and we have uh, a list of the, the top polluting companies and their lobby groups, mm. plus uh, the agencies um, that work for them. Mm. So, yeah, please go through, have a look. <laughs> um, uh, it's obviously it's not just the people you might suspect, say like the Woodsides and the Santosses, which are the the big fossil fuel companies. Um, it's also their lobby groups, um, Minerals Council. Um, each state has a, a minerals lobbying group, and then you know people that you might not suspect um, in terms of companies like AGL and Origin Energy. Um, they very much promote themselves as clean energy companies, but in fact, you know they they use fossil fuels. Yes, for sure. I'd definitely be checking out that website after the show. Um, and so you've mentioned that the organisation is really centred around encouraging, I guess, marketing and PR people to, to stop supporting fossil fuel industries. Are there any other components um, of the organisation that are fighting for, for climate emergency? Are there any other activities that you're undertaking? Yeah, well, we, um, we lobby um, the organisers of awards programs. Um, awards are very big in, in marketing, PR and advertising. And uh, so one thing we do is we lobby them to not um, give uh, awards to any campaigns for high-polluting products, as an example. Um, so that, that's the kind of thing we're doing. We, we do uh, a yearly survey of attitudes in uh, the industry to see how they're changing. And we do uh, reach out in education um, telling people about greenwashing, um, how they might be greenwashing companies without even knowing it, um, as an example, and just starting with those important conversations. Definitely very important conversations to be having. And have you found you've been making much traction? What's the response been so far? Well, look, it, it, it's really interesting. Um, some of the big advertisers uh, really are changing their ways, They're, you know, um, walking the walk, not just talking the talk, and the companies like Woolworth, Patagonia, that are making really uh, big changes in their overall, um, uh, you know, um, uh, supply chains and, and production. Um, and I think the conversation in um, the comms and PR industries have moved significantly since the Black Summer. However, it's, uh, it's nowhere near far enough. Um, I think um, these uh, professional services um, uh, um, are sort of gone under the radar in terms of their role in perpetuating the climate crisis. Um, sort of like lawyers and accountants also sort of go a bit unscrutinised. So they're under the radar a bit. Um, and you know, when there's a big account with lots of money, it's pretty hard to say no to. So look, we say it's um, it, it started, but it's nowhere near far enough. Um, Coal, oil and gas is such a big force in our economy um, and uh, it, it's pretty hard to tackle them. But um, we certainly won't be happy until uh, fossil fuels ads are banned, um, just like tobacco ads are now. 
I think one of the interesting things as well is um, there was some research by um, Wark um, who, who, who sort of do insights and analysis around sort of advertising around the world, and they found that um, great work by all of these talented people in our industry, if, if, if they absolutely nail it, it can lead up to, to about 15 times the results um, for these organisations. So, you know, very effective creative work and, and communications leads to incredible outsized results for these organisations. So... It's easy to convince yourself when you go in that you're just going in and working by the hour and just making that, you know, bus shelter or, or sort of doing that tram or what have you, but it can lead to sort of outsized results. So we really are um, uh, magnifiers and um, uh, we need to think about it that way. You know, you can be putting your best work into other things, uh, other industries that need your help that um, we need to focus on for the next few decades, uh, not just the ones that Belinda's mentioned. Yeah, some some great points made there about the role of the creative businesses in being a part of the solution rather than contributing to the problem. Um, and this question is directed at both of you. What can people do if they're concerned about this? Belinda, what would you say? Uh, what would I say? Um, look, I think um, people in the creative industry should totally go to comsdeclare.org and declare that they won't promote fossil fuels or spin science. Um, I think if, if you don't want to do that, you know, and you are in the creative industries or, or any sort of communication, um, you know, consider your choices on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, if you understand and are aware of, of the issue of climate change, have, you know, those conversations that, uh, you know, the Water Mess book um, helps. Um, and, you know, p- uh, staff do have power. Um, you know, you can say no to a, to a brief that you don't agree with. Like, if you're a vegetarian, for example, you're not going to work on a beef campaign. So I, I think similarly, if, if you uh, understand the, the climate emergency, then don't work on a fossil fuel account and, and tell your boss that. Mm. I'd agree. Yeah, the majority of Australians um, uh, understand that the science is in and, and we are experiencing uh, man-made climate change. Um, so, yeah, just look around the room. It, 70, 80% of us are very clear on this. 70, 80% of the people working on that client or on that brief uh, are not comfortable with it. So you, you can stand up. Uh, you can um, vote with your feet, vote with your pencils, um, move to another account, move to another agency. Um, you know, life's too short to be doing work that you don't want to do and, and work that harms the, uh, our home, you know. Some great words there. Life is absolutely too short to be doing work that you don't want to do. And Warren, where can we get a copy of this book? Oh yeah, if you want to, uh, if you want to read a book that's very simple, um, if you do have kids or, or little folk around, um, you can get a copy of What a Mess at, um, email, uh, hey at allornothing.co. Hey at allornothing.co. And we'll send you one. No charge. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely be putting those links in our description on the Monday Brecky page on 3CR. Um, so if you want to follow up on that, be sure to visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Monday. Dash Breakfast. Um, and Warren and Belinda, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks, Jacob. Thanks for speaking about it. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, so that was Warren Davies and Belinda Noble speaking about the influence of communications and creative agencies on ensuring that we don't support fossil fuel industries. Um, and up next, we're going to be hearing a short segment about inclusive public health strategy. Uh, But first, let's listen to some CSAs. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. 
to no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. The time is five past eight. Welcome to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Uh, my name's Jacob. And up next, we're going to hear from Dr. Noor Bari, who presents the case for managing COVID as a public health emergency and how we can care for communities in practical and achievable ways. So Noor is an infectious diseases emergency advanced trainee, and they sat down and had a chat with Annie from Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Dr. Noor Barry. She's an immunologist, and uh, this is purely as a way of uh, settling fears around COVID and placing it in its context as a public health issue, which is really important to remember. So, first of all, COVID is an airborne disease, and it travels like smoke, exactly like smoke, and we didn't recognise that. We didn't recognise that, of course, a novel virus that's just skipped out of wherever it came from is going to evolve to get to know us better and become more transmissible. This is a natural selection advantage. We should have anticipated that. We didn't understand that sometimes it transmits loads and sometimes it never transmits at all. So just because you didn't see the effect of your intervention doesn't mean it's not going to work when you need it. And that's why we didn't recognise the value of early lockdowns. Um, and that just became a political football when it should never have been. It's a simple strategy. Um, we should have never had done that with that particular one. We didn't react with urgency, not enough urgency to the threats. I think there's some level of getting too comfortable with this virus. It's, you know, it's a rapidly transmissible disease that really can cause long-term effects. I I think that if you don't recognise that threat and you don't prepare for it adequately, you don't recognise what it's going to do to your economy, your people, their health, their social life, everything is interrupted by COVID and it has interrupted the world. So we didn't prepare for this threat adequately. So we we weren't fast enough with our vaccine program. We didn't diversify it enough. We haven't built the quarantine that we need. And we haven't even started thinking about the vehicles that we should be transporting these people to and from quarantine in because our drivers are being exposed and they don't need to be. I'm sure we can build a vehicle that does not involve driver and occupants in the same car, you know. So what is zero COVID? It's really important that... um We don't radicalise zero COVID. Zero COVID is actually just normal public health. We're not expecting zero COVID all the time in the community. But what we really want to see is a really, really focused effort. And I think that using the number zero as a target focuses the mind, focuses the resources and brings the community together around something that is fairly easy to understand. And that is that when COVID turns up in the community, it's a threat to us all and that we have to do something about it. And that basically we want to do something about it until 
it's not a threat to us anymore. There's a low risk of resurgence. And when we make decisions about this, we need to make it taking into account how to do it humanely, kindly, but effectively so that we can all have what we need, which is our health and our freedom to go about our business and um, be with each other and connect with each other again. So Zero COVID Australia basically wants to use science as the core to tackle this health problem and community strength, essentially. So airborne mitigations, surveillance for strains and ring fencing and border controls. These are not new things. They were part of the pandemic plan and we'll come to that. So can we get to zero COVID? So at the moment, we've got a new strain. We're feeling uncertain because it's new and it seems to be highly transmissible and worse, basically. Um, and when you talk about zero COVID in this environment, people um, are so angry and so upset and so sad that sometimes it's really, really difficult to even say the word zero without immediately having them shut down on you because you can't imagine it right now. Things are just getting worse and worse. And if you think that things, the hospitals will be overwhelmed, I can tell you that the hospitals were on the border of overwhelm before we ever even had COVID. Um, and our leadership is quite clearly looking in the direction of not having zero COVID. And my experience with any of these kind of issues around the world is that it appears that, you know, the the situation goes exactly where you point it. And if you point it as we're going to live with the virus, and that's exactly what we're going to do, and it's going to be really, really challenging. So how did we get to zero COVID in the first place? You know, that's important to look at because, you know, we want to get there again. How do we do it? We use stay-at-home orders. We use test, trace, and isolate. Those were the two key ones, I think, that really, really made the difference. There were also other issues like social distancing, hand washing, et cetera, um, which may have played a part, but it's kind of hard to quantify. And we didn't really plan for it. It just sort of happened because we did what it said in the textbook. We did our public health thing, and that's what got us to where we wanted to go, despite the fact that um, a lot of people said that it was never going to work. Have we ever tried to eliminate something before? Well, apparently we're still trying to eliminate stuff all over the place. Here is the tuberculosis plan, which is current um, as of last year, and it says we're going towards elimination. Now, TB is actually a really difficult um, disease to catch the tail of because people can have it for donkey's years and they can carry it around. They can have no symptoms. And then suddenly one day they're coughing up DB. You know, that's a really tricky one. That can sleep in your system for 20, 30 years. And we still try to do something about that. So I think that to say that we're not going to be able to eliminate disease ever and not aiming for it is unfair in the COVID situation because we have aimed for it for other serious diseases before. And COVID is a serious disease. It's going to be a multi-system disease. Okay, so public health is a group effort. It's about other people. It's not just about myself and what I can do to protect me. It's about everybody. And if you start cutting the lines between who's compliant, who's not compliant, who's vaccinated, who's not vaccinated, and othering people like saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter because they had comorbidities or, you know, well, you know, so-and-so can't stick to the rules. They don't really understand them or whatever. If you other people and you don't make a strategy that is going to be inclusive of everyone, it is going to fail because we live in a world with other people. And that is what public health is about. We don't drive our car safely and stick to the speed limits and everything purely for ourselves it's also for other people and that's what it's all about it's about yourself and others and this takes a group effort 
There's no point setting policy that says you do this and you get vaccinated and you wear a mask if you feel like it or don't wear a mask if you don't feel like it. That's not going to work. We've got to do this together. Um, here are some interesting uh, historical documents. Um, one of them is still in process. So this is the pandemic influenza plan for the country and the New South Wales state. Um, and it quite clearly says that, you know, what to do with airborne diseases and precautions. So it's not like we didn't know what to do. We didn't need to draw up last minute plans and make everything different just for COVID. We knew exactly what to do and we've always known exactly what to do. Um, these plans were made in partnership with WHO um, and they have been around for decades. This is our current infection control resource. It's really, really good. And I thoroughly recommend anyone um that wants to find out about how to control COVID to have a look at this website. It is designed for healthcare, but I am a firm believer that healthcare is, you know, apart from some building engineering issues, healthcare in terms of the practical day-to-day -day and how people interact and how people use things and, you know, education, learning, I think is not that different from the rest of the world. You know, we're still people. We still get taught stuff. We still get checked that we have done it right. You know, these are the same processes that you can do in any workplace. And I'm hoping that soon over the next few weeks or months or even sooner, if possible, we can make guidance like this that's suitable for businesses everywhere. There are a few um, things that we should be doing. So we should be looking at the route of transmission and how we can um, reduce that. So the airborne disease spread needs to be addressed now. We can't ignore it anymore. We've been putting off that homework for too long. Um, we need to do what we're already doing in terms of reducing movement, staying at home. We can use rapid tests to start looking at cases in the community now because um, rapid tests do have issues in terms of picking up false positives. So you can't use them when you've only got one or two cases necessarily. But when you've got populations at risk or bigger outbreaks that like we have now, rapid tests are absolutely the way forward and we should all have some in our cupboard by now. Um, mass pool testing is another technique that can be used together with sewage surveillance. So if you know that sewage has come up positive somewhere, you can actually get samples from everybody. But instead of running a separate PCR for each person and using up all those resources, you can actually test them in batches so that you know roughly where it is and then go back and look again in those areas if you need to. Um, and in the meantime, obviously having the safety of a lockdown in that area if you need to. So that's another issue. Um, Although when you've got a widespread outbreak like this, really, and, or, and personally for me, I think the Delta, a, a more uniform, standard, easy to understand instructions works better for most of the population. So if you start hard, keep it simple, that does help a lot more. But this this can actually pinpoint where your problem is. Um, and then we need to decrease the spread of the outbreak growth. So can we do that? That's the question. You know, people want to know, can we do that? Um, so I think... Everyone, when they get into a really scary situation, they're looking for lifeboats. They're looking for lifeboats. And, and some of our um, leaders have jumped onto the lifeboat of, well, you know, it was going to go this way anyway. And that's their, their way out, their door out of the house on fire. Um, and I sometimes wonder if whether um, some people might think, well, you know, are you hanging on to zero COVID for, as your sort of comfort blanket, your lifeboat? Um, and... Something that doctors do is that we think about the acceptability of a treatment plan. So a pandemic plan is like a treatment plan for lots of people um, and whether or not it's it's worthwhile, whether the patient would like that, whether it's futile. You know, these kind of questions go through our mind. Um, and my my point is, is that 
I don't think a population like Australia, which is so enthusiastic to participate in public health, I think that they would find the following interventions practical, acceptable, um, and I think that they'd be really, really pleased to have something to do that will work um, to reduce the spread of this horrible disease. So the first one is using HEPA filters can reduce the amount of aerosol in the air by up to 90%. That's a huge cleaning power, and we need people to know about this. If your place that you're working doesn't have adequate ventilation, this is a great piece of equipment to add that, you know, it's just a little portable box. It's the same one that you would have bought to deal with bush buyers or pollen or anything else. Um, there's loads and loads of resources on COVID is Airborne website on how to size them properly so you get enough cleaning power, etc. They can be put into workplaces now. They can be put into hospitals now. They can be put into schools because we still have children in schools right now as we speak. Um, that need to be protected. So this is a great piece of kit that can reduce the amount of infectious stuff in the air by 90% um, when you combine it with the use of a normal mask, not a respirator, okay? So that's really, really good cleaning power. This is an amazing study that was done in a hospital, but I think normal people can probably do it as well because we are normal people in hospitals. They did everything the same except start using fitted respirators. Nothing else changed. Their vaccination didn't change. Their, you know, where they're working didn't change. The type of patients they're working with didn't change. And usually what happened was the people working with the COVID patients were 47 times more likely to get COVID than the people working with the non-COVID patients. All they did was change to a respirator and they got rid of that excess risk. That is incredible protection power for workers everywhere. And I think that this is one of the wonderful studies done in the last year that has finally gone to the bottom of whether this stuff works or not. So last year, um, we had a large-ish COVID outbreak uh, by Australian standards, and we had lots of healthcare workers getting sick. Two things have changed between last year and this year. In New South Wales, they have allowed healthcare workers to use respirators. No, not every part of the hospital is using it, but certainly the high-risk parts, the red zones, the emergency departments, the ICUs, um, anyone in contact with a known COVID patient that hasn't been screened yet is definitely using it. And others do have a somewhat variable access to it as well, depending on supplies. So last year we had... 97 healthcare worker infections acquired at work and 46 from an unknown source. And this was using the old guidelines, the old ICAG surgical mask guidelines, um, and not vaccinated. The vast majority of the workers in that outbreak were actually acquiring their infections at work. Now, I can't tell you how bad the gaslighting is when it comes to workers and getting infected at work. We were told in healthcare for so long that we were getting out home and bringing it into work. Well, how did it get into our homes, you know? And this is exactly what is going on right now with all other types of workers. Like healthcare workers have gotten over this bump, but the rest of the population who are also just experiencing the same thing um, are being told it's at home or you're getting it from somewhere else. No, no, people are getting it at work because during a lockdown, that's where they are. They're either at work or they're at home. And, and as I said, the use of respirators is somewhat patchy. The use of ventilation is, you know, it's being done, but it's not uniform between different buildings and things. So we've still made a huge, huge reduction in the amount of people being infected through a combination of getting those workers vaccinated and giving them better masks. 
So here you see that there's a sevenfold reduction in transmission when some proportion of the workforce is vaccinated and they're using the right respirators and ventilation has been, you know, as best as we can. You can see also here, I've got a little quote from Lynn Gilbert um, from back then. She was strongly opposed to giving healthcare workers masks because she felt that if we didn't wear them perfectly, that we couldn't get any uh, benefit from them. But actually, you don't have to wear them. It's good to wear them perfectly. Don't get me wrong. But if normal people fitting them in normal ways can still give you a benefit over and above wearing a surgical mask or a loose cloth mask, And if you get them fit tested, which is what every worker is entitled to, to be safe at their workplace, get them fit tested, you get even more protections. This is something that's really, really important that every worker should have. Vaccination, look, it's very, very important. It's going to save loads of lives. We should get vaccinated if we can. Everyone that can should. Um, And when it's your turn, please, please do. But it's just going to be a little bit too slow to avoid the disaster. We're actually already working under surge plans we call them but what is a surge plan it's essentially a disaster right so we're in a disaster already in healthcare so we need to move faster than this there are some sort of measurements early measurements saying you know how much we can reduce the transmission of delta with vaccines but it's no by no means a real you know done deal that we definitely know what's going on there and it's probably going to be less than with alpha and the other variants so We need more, more than just vaccines to get through this, to avert a massive, massive disaster in New South Wales. Um, And we have to bear in mind that whatever we're doing, we're locked into this road until people can get their second dose and the second dose has had time to work. That's an awful long time to hold out when we're doubling every 11 to 12 days. So, you know, we have to do something else. Um, Can we give people in the community respirators? What are they going to do with it if we give it to them? Well, apparently people do just fine. Okay, other countries have tried it. It's depending on the style. There are many, many new designs of respirators for community use. Um, Some of them are more acceptable than the types that we use in healthcare. They're less painful. They fit better. Um, There's so much more we can do. And I think this is a message that we just need to get out to people everywhere that the fit that not having a gap around the edge is so important now with Delta. It is just everything relies on that, um, as well as the filtration. But the fit, 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 and comfort so that you actually wear it. There's no point giving young people especially a mask that is uncomfortable. They cannot wear it. So comfort, fit, and filtration all need to be better in our masks now. We're not going to – like last year, I fought the whole year for cloth masks for everyone, but now we've just got to step it up. Ventilation. Everyone thinks ventilation is just totally impossible. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this little gizmo here is the carbon dioxide monitor that I use. It's literally a box with a number on the front. It is not complicated. It's a nice big number. You look at it, it's less than 800. You feel somewhat reassured that your ventilation is working well. We've been doing it for centuries and centuries. Um, Florence Nightingale has done amazing observational studies on how ventilation affects the transmission of disease in multiple diseases. She was an absolutely um, an amazing and inspiring research scientist. Ventilation, it's like if a fish is in a tank, you're changing the water out, you're getting fresh water in, okay? Um, and when you can't get fresh water in or between water changes, you, for a fish tank, you would use the little pump filter. Well, for people as well, you can use those HEPA filters to supplement your ventilation in areas that aren't getting good enough ventilation. Or if it's impossible, like we have bushfires coming up, 
um, it's going to get really, really hard to do just ventilation. So you use filtration because you, you're not going to be able to open the windows soon. Does it work? Well, yes, it does. Victoria Lush, they did an amazing uh, piece of work looking at how spacing out patients so that there's less source of virus is really, really useful and how they increased um, the fresh air and how that helped. And they also changed masks as well and how that all helped disease transmission. So this is not purely a hospital thing. Again, it, this could be applied anywhere, spacing people out to reduce the source, getting better ventilation, getting better masks. That's what we need to do. That was Dr. Noor Bari there speaking with Annie from Solidarity Breakfast. Um, if you liked that, you can head to our website and catch Solidarity Breakfast every Saturday from 7.30 a.m. Um, the time is now 8.25, um, and we're now going to go to a song. So this one's called Heal by Mitch Tambo.
So that was Mitch Tambo with his latest track, Heal. Uh, now, interesting story about that one. Came out a few days ago in the lead up to Father's Day, and it's an exploration of, of what it means to heal both individually and as a nation. Um, and I think it's a, a beautiful piece to close out our show today. Uh, there's lots going on in the world right now, but we just need to remember to look after ourselves um, and do our best to get by. So if you haven't already, make sure you get your vaccine, um, stay safe, stay at home, um, and look after yourselves. Uh, this is Jacob on 3CR. Stay tuned now for Women on the Line, um, and you can tune in tomorrow for our Tuesday breakfast show. Thanks so much. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.